The views expressed here do not reflect the views of our respective employers. Hello and welcome to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is Phil and I'll be your host today alongside TJ. Hello. SpexCast is made for space fans like you. Check out daily space news and mission deep dives on our site, blog.spexcast.com, and join the discussion on forum.spexcast.com. You can also send us a tweet at SpexCast or an email to spexcast at gmail.com. Today on SpexCast, we dive into the exciting advancements and discoveries robotic science vehicles are making across the solar system. First up, SpaceIL launched the first commercial lunar lander on a SpaceX Falcon 9. Also, JAXA's Hayabusa 2 landed on its target asteroid Ryugu, shooting it with a bullet to collect samples for the next stage of its multi-year mission. Lastly, we remember Opportunity, one of the most prolific robotic explorers. Yes, very exciting episode this week. Uh, But we're going to start off with some listener mail. In episode 64, we talked about Virgin Galactic's first powered flight into space, signaling the approach of commercial flights for the 14-year-old company. We also took the opportunity to compare Virgin Galactic's Spaceship 2 with a recent competitor, New Shepard, from Blue Origin. Our listener Emmett writes in, pointing out a few things we missed in our discussion a few weeks ago. So, from his email... Firstly, when you compared and contrasted the Blue Origin New Shepard and the Virgin Galactic Spaceship 2, you made no mention of safety considerations. To that point, four people have been killed so far in the development operation of Spaceship 2. Branson tends not to acknowledge the older accident, but three scale composite engineers were killed in an oxidizer processing mishap in 2007. In the immediate aftermath of the fatal explosion, Bert Rutten claimed that nitrous oxide was not considered a hazardous material. Yeah, so this this first point, this uh, accident that happened in 2007, um, I just want to comment on things. I, I did look it up. Um, and first, before we get into this discussion any further, I do want to point out that Scaled Composites was the company that designed the prototypes for um, Spaceship 2 and uh, White Knight 1. And the Spaceship Company, which is a separate company, began commercial production for it in 2010. And originally, the Spaceship Company was jointly owned by uh, Virgin, which owned like 70%, and Scaled Composites, which owned 30% until 2012, when now Virgin Galactic is the sole owner of the Spaceship Company. So that's kind of confusing, but at the time, um, this happened with Scaled Composites. Um, which was building it for Virgin. Minor detail, but I think it's worth pointing out. Um, Anyway, so when this accident happened, the LA Times did an interview with Bert Rutan, who founded Scaled Composites. Um, And our listener Emmett is right in pointing out that Rutan actually said that nitrous oxide, which they were using as a propellant, uh, Rutan said he's quoted as saying it's, not considered a hazardous material. And to some effect, he's right. Um, it was It's laughing gas. It's the same stuff that people use as, you know, boost in their car engines. But, like, this caused a fatal accident at their plant. So after the fact, Cal OSHA did do a thorough investigation of this accident. And at the end of it, they didn't end up determining a cause. And a point to remember is that while nitrous oxide by itself might not be a hazardous material, like say a hypergolic fuel would, where 
any contact on the skin would be very dangerous or deadly. When you're using it in a compressed fashion to build rocket engines, our rocket engine system is where the danger comes from. Right. And that is not to say that they didn't take this lightly. Scaled Composites at length publicly uh, expressed, you know, regret for not seeing this sooner and made some changes internally um, to improve the safety in their development. Continuing with the email, Emmett goes on with, to date, no one has died in the development or operation of New Shepard vehicles. Secondly, New Shepard is completely automated. Spaceship 2 is completely manual, so much so that it is compared to a dawn of aviation type design. This is in keeping with Burt Rutan's one-off test aircraft design philosophy. Not coincidentally, the most recent fatality in 2014, where the vehicle broke up and the co-pilot was killed, was attributed by the FAA and the NTSB to human factor design flaws. And uh, I did want to respond to this as well. And the National Transportation Safety Board that reviewed the accident in 2014 did call out the, the fact that scale composites um, had a failure to consider and protect against the possibility that a single human error could result in a catastrophic hazard to the Spaceship 2 vehicle. And like, those are intense words. Yeah, for reference, the single human error was that the feathering mechanism, which unlocks the rear booms of the vehicle for re-entry, was a manual control that had no safety mechanism built in. So during powered flight, when the entire system is supposed to be locked into flight position, the co-pilot was able to uh, hit that lever and unlock the wing mechanism, which ended catastrophically. So I think for this accident, I think Emmett's entirely right, where with Spaceship 2, because it's flown by pilots, they have had these accidents. And I don't think anyone will give Virgin Galactic slack for what happened in 2014. But I think on the other side, uh, when these kind of events happen, there is a legacy of... Uh, safety improvements that these cause, where with the newer Spaceship 2 vehicles, that specific safety issue has been resolved. And I'm sure they've gone through and done uh, safety analysis to see were there any other uh, systems and design flaws that could behave like this. And so what I would say is because the company has had these kind of failures in the past, I think that improves the culture of safety at a company. And I think bodes well for commercial flights. Um, if you had a, a new entrant who had never experienced any, any kind of safety mishaps, which could be attributed to their engineering process, but could also be attributed to luck, I think it's less likely for the company to have a culture of safety. For example, with SpaceX, they had all of their failures at the very beginning of the company when they were trying to get their first launch. And then they had several years of successes, which inadvertently led to two catastrophic accidents or mishaps uh, within a year and a half of each other. And through both of those, the engineering team took a hard look at, at potential safety issues and put in innumerable safety improvements to those vehicles which made them safer and more reliable. And that was all before they got to a point where they're launching people on these rockets. Um, so I think it's unfortunately a good thing that companies like this have experienced failure. 
uh, because it does improve their internal cultures of safety. Yeah, and I think that that last point is, is key. Uh, both SpaceX and uh, New Shepard, who we were originally comparing with Virgin Galactic, have been launching uncrewed spacecraft. When they when they experience a catastrophic failure, there's not that added weight of having a human on board. And that's something that uh, Virgin Galactic, uh, unfortunately, has had to deal with really early on in their in their uh, company lifetime. One thing that I really hope um, that everybody that works in the space industry watches is a video by Wi- William Gerstenmaier from NASA on the dangers of complacency. And complacency is kind of the biggest enemy when it comes to uh, being prepared for failure. And uh, Virgin Galactic, I'm sure is familiar with this. People at Blue Origin who have had failures of their uncrewed spacecraft and people at SpaceX as well, obviously, and even Boeing, you know, they're preparing to take humans. Complacency is the enemy. Uh, the one last thing that Emin mentioned uh, was that uh, we actually asserted that Spaceship Two was completely reusable in our last episode. And uh, we thank you for that correction. On the show, we commonly refer to reusable as being interchangeable with not expendable, refueling a liquid rocket and replacing a hybrid engine. It's a kind of a finer detail when comparing it to other methods of launching things into space that scrap the whole vehicle after use. So that's where we uh, draw the distinction. So if you have thoughts, comments, suggestions, or your own questions you'd like to have featured on the show, shoot us an email at specscast.gmail.com or tweet at us at SpexCast. Awesome. Okay, so let's get into the first uh, current events news story that happened recently. On February 21st, a SpaceX Falcon 9 took off from Cape Canaveral with a unique payload on board from SpaceIL. Yeah, so SpaceIL is actually a really cool company. It was founded for the Google Lunar X Prize in 2011. And the Google Lunar X Prize was kind of an extension of the Ansari X Prize, created by the XPRIZE Foundation, which the idea is to have a formal prize with prize money that causes teams to design and compete to build new technologies and has a knock-on effect of those teams going out to, to raise even more money so that kind of a mini investment boom happens in a specific area. So the idea here was to create companies and the technology needed to have private lunar landers. Unfortunately, for the XPRIZE, the requirements was for a a full lunar lander and a rover that could undock from the lander and travel up to a thousand feet, all while recording uh, video and sending that back to Earth. And unfortunately, after several extensions, no team was ready with their finished payload and a booked launch. And so the prize ended. Google uh, backed out. However, Space Isle had done all this engineering, they had built this lander, and it's actually now in orbit headed to the moon. So what does the spacecraft look like? So this is an uncrewed lunar lander, and it will actually be the smallest uh, lander to touch down on the moon. It's called Bereshit, which is Hebrew for in the beginning. On board, it has uh, some instruments to measure the moon's local magnetic field, and it also has a digital time capsule with a full copy of the English language Wikipedia, the Bible, children's drawings, memories of a Holocaust survivor, Israeli's national anthem, the Israeli flag, and a copy of the Israeli Declaration of Independence. 
And this is actually the world's first uh, privately funded spacecraft uh, that will reach the moon. Yeah, it's a, it's a significant accomplishment because this is a private company. It's uh, based in Israel, but it's not funded by the Israeli government. And it's also, it's launching on a SpaceX rocket, so it's a full commercial uh, space mission. Uh, so the timeline, it launched on the 21st of February as a secondary payload to a SpaceX satellite mission. And it's actually going to slowly raise its orbit over the course of about a month and a half. So right now it's in about a 400,000 kilometer parking orbit, and it will expand that so that in early April, it'll actually be captured by the moon. And so the current timeline is for April 4th, it'll enter lunar orbit. And once it's orbiting the moon, it should be a very quick descent. So it's supposed to land that same day. The lander will uh, touch down in Mare Serenitatis, which is an area in the northern hemisphere of the moon. And it will send live video from the surface and conduct experiments with those instruments we mentioned before. Um, but what were the requirements for the Lunar X Prize? So as part of this mission, they've uh, basically gotten rid of the lunar rover right. uh, requirement. And so that's what's allowing this company to fi finalize their lander and actually launch it only about a year after the end of the Google X Prize. One of the questions I have following this launch is, what is the kind of the impact and the big picture of this launch? Uh, obviously, this is not a competing entry into the Google Lunar X Prize. Uh, and I think some people have been asking, like, what is the point, right? You built this entire lunar lander, you have a secondary payload on a launch vehicle, and it's going to land and take pictures, right? In the 1960s, we had unmanned and manned missions to the moon that basically did exactly that. But I think the big uh, impact of this is A, it's a commercial mission, uh, while prior efforts were done by countries. So it's kind of showing that landing on the moon is possible for smaller organizations. And I do think that we've been covering the general trend of changing focus back to the moon. And so we've talked about NASA programs for unmanned lunar landers to deliver cargo. Last episode, we covered NASA proposals for manned lunar landers to the surface. And so I think this fits nicely into that new focus. And I think technology from Space IL or its competitors during the XPRIZE are going to kind of filter into those future projects that we might see in the next couple of years. Definitely. And it's really interesting to me um, that this is even possible for, for private companies. You know, re recently we've uh, seen a lot more commercial players come into the space industry in general, not just, uh, we talk a lot about launchers, but not just launchers. And I think the fact that expanding that horizon um, to lunar orbit and the lunar surface is really exciting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, last episode we talked about MARCO, which was a NASA mission that uses CubeSat technology. With Space IL, you have the smallest lunar lander ever. I think with the success of MARCO and this mission, that those are uh, compelling arguments for the future of miniaturized spacecraft. Yeah. And so I think whether it's these companies or governments or other commercial ventures, we'll be seeing more of these small spacecraft that are using modern technology to shrink the size and the volume and the mass of their components, yep. but still have the capability to do interesting things and have that go to not just the moon, but we could see that on 
on Mars and other planets, whether it's inner solar system like Venus or Mercury or the outer planets uh, like Jupiter and Saturn or beyond uh, for much lower cost, but still having the same capability. So I think that is a really exciting future that we're headed towards. Yeah. And as you get smaller, um, anyone that has played Kerbal Space Program will realize that anytime your payload gets smaller, like your big problems get kind of simpler. <laughs> it's easier to fit in a fairing. It's easier to put it into orbits around that are way out in the solar system. The fact that these small technologies are now capable of the things that required school bus sized satellites in years past is, is really exciting. Yeah, even with the explosion of small launch vehicles, we'll cover in a little bit, uh, this mission was made possible because their lunar lander was able to go as a ride share on a much larger, larger rocket. So they're paying the fraction of the cost for a launch because of the miniaturization and the fact that we have more commercial launches happening every year and we have extra capacity to have these secondary payloads that small spacecraft can ride along. Mm -hmm. All right, so um, to our listeners out there, what do you think of Space IL? And do you think other companies will follow suit and send commercial missions to the moon or other places in the solar system? Uh, you can let us know on our forum, uh, forum.specscast.com. So commercial space launch is also progressing rapidly. Orbex unveiled their new launch vehicle, Orbex Prime, which could bring native launch capability to the UK from their new space launch complex. Yeah, this is really interesting to me. Um, Orbex Prime is a small sat launcher with a payload capacity of 150 to 200 kilograms and a maximum altitude of 1,250 kilometers, which is the upper end of LEO. But there's some interesting things about this rocket, including the fact that it is it has a 3D printed engine. A carbon fiber body, and it will be launched from Sutherland Spaceport, which is in northern Scotland. It's definitely exciting to see how the UK space plans are progressing. Uh, this spaceport recently got approved last year, and the biggest question was who's going to launch from it. And to see that kind of partnership start to solidify with a UK native launch provider uh, from a UK launch site is really interesting to see because for a long time, the number of countries that had their own access to space was a very limited club. And so the kind of small set launcher explosion that we're seeing uh, is giving companies that you don't traditionally think of as space launch powerhouses the opportunity to get back into that market. Mm -hmm. And to differentiate them, besides being uh, launched from Scotland, um, they've gone with some interesting design choices, in my opinion. Uh, first of all, their fuel, instead of using traditional RP-1 or kerosene uh, fuel, they're going with biopropane and liquid oxygen. Um, and one of the reasonings the CEO, Chris Larmore, gave was that uh, biopropane and liquid oxygen results in 90% less carbon dioxide in the exhaust. Also, uh, biopropane can also be condensed, similar to how SpaceX uh, condenses their liquid oxygen propellant by up to 30%. So that allows them to put more fuel into a smaller rocket and increase the performance of their engine and the efficiency of their overall launch vehicle by having less tank mass. Yeah, one of the big questions about Orbex Prime is, will it be reusable? 
uh, with Electron that's currently operating and other small set launchers, we usually don't see reusability plans. We try to, they, we usually see plans to manufacture the vehicle as cheaply as possible. However, Orbex has mentioned that uh, their first stage will potentially be reusable. However, they haven't shared details except for it's the fact that it's designed to land in the ocean and that they have a proprietary uh, method that they're going to be using. Yeah, and I think that the main thing they're going to want to save and reuse is going to be that engine, which is the, the majority of the cost of uh, making one of these rockets. Phil, do you think that they're going to be going with some kind of parachute-assisted approach or something more exotic like a flyback, parasail, some other mechanism? The CEO said they're going to be landing in the ocean, um, and he did also say that their method was patent pending. So uh, my first thought was, on a small launcher like this, they've already you know, mentioned 3D printed engine. They've already mentioned carbon fiber body. So what other sort of you know, semi-novel thing would they go for? I wouldn't be surprised if it was some sort of uh, catcher's mitt, Mr. Steven type of ship that would uh, cap- catch it in the ocean rather than having to fish it out of the water. Because once the salt water um, gets into all the nooks and crannies of these uh, mostly metal, um, here also carbon fiber, there's a lot of sensitive electronics. Once it gets in there, it does a whole lot of damage. So I think the key for them to have it be reusable is going to be keeping it as dry as possible. And an easy way to do that is to catch it. And you know, if you asked me a year ago, I would have kind of laughed at that idea too. But um, SpaceX's Mr. Steven ship that's been trying to catch the fairings has been, you know, having better success than I would have expected. So, um, you know, I, I don't think that's out of the question. What do you think? I think that um, some kind of retropropulsive assistance will be used. Uh, I don't think it's going to be like a pinpoint landing. Um but historically, with the SpaceX Falcon 1 and the first few flights of Falcon 9, they tried parachutes to slow down the stage. And they found that those parachutes were just completely shredded because the reentry speed of the stage was so high. And so if that's the main problem, just getting the stage to, st- to stay slow enough so that it doesn't structurally just gets destroyed before it can land, points to some kind of uh, retro-propulsive slowdown. Um, so we'll see how this pans out. Uh, I think getting a vehicle on the launch pad is going to be a huge challenge for them, and reusability can kind of take a back seat. Uh, Hopefully, they can, using 3D printing and using carbon composite manufacturing, create a compelling vehicle that uh, is competitive without reuse from the very first flight. But the fact that they have plans and patent-pending design implementations is always a good sign because reuse can have such a big impact on the economics of launch vehicles. Yeah, and when Orbex uh, announced this vehicle, uh, Orbex Prime, they also shared that they intend for their first flight to happen by the end of 2021, and their first customer is Surrey Satellite Technology Limited. So they, they actually have a customer for this, and the goal for them is to launch about once a month by 2024. Yeah, I think it's definitely going to be a race to see how many of these uh, small sat launcher companies can get through the engineering process and get a vehicle flying. Yeah. Because there's only so many launch slots available. 
uh, and payloads available. So I think it's a great sign that they have customers booked already, but they're going to need to get the rocket out and tested and operational because there's going to be a huge number of competitors. And Electron is already an operational small sat launcher. Um, so three years from now, the, the number of operational small sat launchers could be in the half dozen or more. So do you think this is a gamble then? I think it's 100% uh, a very risky business proposition, but I think the the overall fact that none of these companies can avoid is that rocket science is hard and things happen, right? For a competitor, if they have a mishap on their, their first test flight and it takes six months or nine months to get around to a second flight, it only takes a handful of failures across a handful of companies to put a new competitor right back into and right back in the front um, just because of how long these lead times are. I have an interesting question that might diverge the conversation a bit. So one thing that we know from history and from other industries is that um, when this type of thing happens and there's this environment where new companies are sprouting up and all have interesting ideas and are all kind of competing, but they're all new. One thing that could happen is a larger company could acquire the smaller ones. And, you know, a company that's operating out of Scotland and a company that's launching from New Zealand and stuff like that, um, meaning Orbex and and Rocket Lab, uh, which we've already mentioned. Do you think that that's something that we should kind of look out for is a, a larger company seeing the value and potential in these small launcher companies and rather than competing with them or, um, you know, buying a partial, buying a portion in them, but just acquiring them outright. I mean, that's just pure speculation, but I, I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Well, I think, I think mergers and acquisitions in this industry are really interesting because it's not a case where you can acquire technology that's going to propel your business case. Yeah, in the tech sector, if you have a, a big software company and you have a, a smaller company that has an innovative new product, you can buy that company and rebrand that product and make your overall offering more competitive. When it comes to rocket technology, I think it's really difficult to acquire another company's technology and then integrate it into your existing product. And I don't think it makes sense for a company to acquire another and then have two separate rocket lines that they support, especially because these small sat launchers are functionally very similar in the kind of payloads they can put up and the orbits they go to. Um, I would say if any mergers and acquisitions happen, it's going to be, be because one company or a few companies are getting big and they're bringing revenue and they want to stamp out competition. Because if you can acquire a company that has a dozen uh, contracts for payloads signed and then just shift those contract launches to you, that's going to help you improve your revenue when having a whole new rocket system and new assembly line isn't really going to make you more competitive. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think we have to worry about mergers and acquisitions this year. But if there's kind of a, a big upset in the small sat launcher market or just the overall economy and like money becomes tight and like, you know, it's just more competitive to build these companies, it might happen. But it really comes down to, you know, I, th- I think it's 
uh, a metaphor is these companies are not racing to build the first automobile. They're racing to build the automobile that's going to go to the next million, 10 million customers, right? So all of the, the basics have been kind of figured out and they're just seeing, can I build a product that solves the need cheaper than others and build out a niche? And I think whatever company gets the biggest and can produce the most rockets and whether they have an edge, which is in their manufacturing technology, or they have reusability or some kind of com- competitive edge, that's going to be the ones that are the most successful. I think that's a really great answer. And I'd like to kick that back over to the listeners as well. So it seems like all these new small launchers are seemingly announced like every month. And Orbex is an interesting new design. So if you think that Orbex has a chance to succeed, or if you think it's going to fail, or if you have opinions on the future of small sat launchers in the whole industry at large, uh, let us know on the forum. We'll have a link in the description. Okay, so we're going to take this, uh, the rest of this episode beyond Earth orbit. And uh, we're going to talk about Japan's Hayabusa 2 probe, which hit a mi- major milestone in its mission this week. Yeah, so Hayabusa 2 launched in December 2014. The spacecraft rendezvous with its target asteroid, Ryogu, last September. So on its first close approach, it released two hopping rovers to the surface, both very small, less than one kilogram each. And it had been about a 20-kilometer orbit around the asteroid. Yeah, and on February 21st, uh, the Hayabusa 2 spacecraft touched down on the surface of Ryugu. And it has this uh, really cool instrument used to get samples of the surface. So it's like a horn that's placed, over, that's placed on the surface, on the regolith. And it shoots the surface with a bullet. And that bullet kicks up a bunch of material into the horn uh, and the material is actually stored for being returned to Earth at a later time. So the Japanese space agency JAXA has uh, said on Twitter that, that the use of this uh, bullet and sample collection method was a success, but it's the first of multiple. So there's actually another bullet on board that's more mass, which they'll use to shoot the asteroid again. And the reason for this is the first bullet will kick up a lot of stuff on the surface. That's stuff that's been around for billions of years and been bombarded with cosmic rays and all that. But the more massive bullet will actually kick up more stuff from deeper beneath the surface. And uh, this asteroid is, is thought by astronomers to be rich in water and organic matter. And so the hope is that by gathering these samples, scientists can see what uh, types of things are in these asteroids and maybe even look for how life got started in the solar system. One of the most exciting aspects of the mission is this actually a sample return mission. So after using the horn to collect multiple samples, it'll travel from the asteroid back to Earth and use descent uh, modules and descent capsules to return those individual samples and they're about 40 centimeters by 20 centimeters. So these are tiny spacecraft that are going to be coming in extremely fast and they're designed to land in remote parts of Australia. And so uh, across this whole mission, which is going to take in total six years, um, it's going to go all the way out to this asteroid and eventually return just a small portion of the final spacecraft all the way back to the surface of the Earth. This whole mission is really cool. And 
as is the, the norm nowadays, not only has it been doing these cool things way out in space, but it's had cameras on board. And so we've got to see really, really uh, close up images of the Ryugu asteroid. And then we'll get to see the actual material that we looked at in the camera uh, back in the lab. Yes, it's, it's actually kind of incredible. This probe was launched in 2014. The design of that happened years and years before of that. So this is early 2000s technology. And so when we cover probes that are launching now that have a decade plus more of development into better cameras and better sensors, even though the destinations are far away, the end result uh, is much higher quality and a much richer experience that we all get to experience uh, back here at home through tweets, through the JAXA website, and other sources. Mm-hmm. Um, another similar asteroid mission that was launched uh, around the same time is the OSIRIS-REx mission. It was launched uh, in 2016. OSIRIS-REx is also a sample return mission from the asteroid Bennu, but it won't come back until 2023. Since these two missions are staggered, I think it's really, really awesome for the scientific community to get started looking at real samples from an asteroid now and then later in 2023 when OSIRIS-REx returns its sample, they'll already have like a scientific foundation for what to expect and how to analyze these things and then a whole new uh, trove of information would come from that mission too. So while Hayabusa 2 is doing great things on asteroid Ryogu, all robotic scientific missions do have to come to an end. NASA finally said goodbye to Opportunity, its solar-powered Martian rover that it launched in 2003. So the Opportunity mission was actually a dual rover mission uh, with Spirit and Opportunity part of NASA's Mars Exploration Rover Program. Uh, The prior Martian rover Sojourner was a secondary payload for the Martian lander Pathfinder. Uh, so Spear and Opportunity were dedicated missions. Uh, if you watch the launch or have seen videos, they actually used a cushioned airbag system. So they actually re-entered Mars using a heat shield and parachutes and then bounced using these airbags before finally uh, kind of opening like an origami package and having the solar-powered rover unfold and drive across the Martian surface. Uh, Opportunity landed in 2004 and was supposed to operate for 90 souls. So those are Martian days that are just a little bit longer than an Earth day, but actually operated for 5,352 souls over 15 Earth years. Yeah, and Opportunity has has really been uh, one of the poster childs for extended missions when it comes to this thing, especially since it was only, you know, meant to only design to live for 90 90 souls. And in those 15 years, it did a lot of really cool things. So it climbed the steepest slope on Mars uh, to date, uh, 32 degrees. The highest elevation it reached was 443 feet or 135 meters. It's traveled the longest distance uh, of any rover on any extraterrestrial body. Um, It's traveled a total of 28.06 miles over its lifetime, or 45 kilometers, which is even longer uh, than Lunokhod 2, which went to the moon, uh, launched by the USSR. Opportunity carries with it a lot of great memories because 
it's been operating for so long. So multiple generations have seen it on the surface of Mars, have seen the pictures it's taken, uh, the iconic uh, kind of rocker bogey wheel system with uh, the solar panels and the, the, two, the dual cameras that look kind of like eyes. You know, for a lot of people, when they think Mars rovers, they think of Spirit and Opportunity. Uh, so while the Opportunity mission has ended, human operations on Mars are still going strong. So its sister rover, Spirit, is still operating. However, it has been stuck for many years, so it is a stationary scientific outpost. And Curiosity, which is the follow-up to Spirit and Opportunity, is going on strong. And it uses a nuclear isotope power uh, powertrain, so it has no problems going through uh, dust storms where the solar-powered rovers have to shut down and hibernate because they don't have the power to continue to operate. And Curiosity is going to be joined by the Mars 2020 rover. And so across this multiple decades of Martian rover exploration, we're still pushing the boundaries of sending new instruments, bigger, more powerful rovers. We covered the InSight lander, uh, which is kind of a follow-up to Phoenix and Pathfinder. And so activity on Mars and beyond is still going strong. So my fondest memory of opportunity was actually the launch back in 2003 when I was just a small child and seeing that blue Delta II rocket with the bright white uh, solid rocket boosters on the side, um, which for a long time was my favorite rocket. But we want to know what your favorite memories of Spirit and Opportunity are. So you can tweet us at SpexCast uh, with your memories, your stories, uh, and your highlights of this 15-plus year mission. So uh, one Martian project we're actually happy to see end is <laughs> Mars One, the reality TV scam that promised a one-way ticket to Mars for many hopeful astronauts. So the company uh, finally uh, is bankrupt. Uh, it filed for bankruptcy in the Netherlands. And so this is the official end of Mars One. And for those that uh, are not aware of Mars One, uh, this was a confirmed scam for people who are passionate about Mars. And so the idea and the sell was uh, if enough people volunteered uh, and this company was able to send 100 colonists to Mars on a, a one-way trip, they would record their journey, the, the training process, the journey, and them living on Mars as a reality TV series. And that reality TV series would make a bunch of money, which would fund the colony, would fund future endeavors. However, uh, while that idea sounds enticing, the company was actually built as a scam. So what happened was uh, they charged people application fees. So they made an offer of, any regular person could go to Mars, but they have to apply, they have to be selected, we're only going to select 100 in total, and they have to go through all this training, but they charge an application fee. And the application fee actually varied depending on what country you were from, based on the socioeconomic factors there. Um, so a whole bunch of people uh, applied. Uh, for example, a YouTuber, YouTuber of the channel Cody's Lab actually applied and made a couple of videos about his application. And so there's a lot of excitement at the time. However, the company never actually hired any engineers. So they didn't have system engineers, they didn't have mission planners, they didn't have um, the technical people to build the technology and the plan to go to Mars. 
Uh, and a common defense for that was like, oh, they'll contract that out. They might go to Lockheed Martin. They might go to SpaceX. Uh, but the company never made contracts with those with those companies. For a lot of the time, the concept art was Dragon Ones landed on Mars with some kind of umbilical tube between them. So that 15 or 20 Dragon Ones on the surface of Mars would be the base, and there'd be solar panels and underground sections. All of it just kind of concept art. So uh, they had downselected to 100 potential candidates, and then they were supposed to go through uh, training. And a part of that was a big PR push of these are the 100 people that could go to Mars. And so they went on morning talk shows and they went on different uh, public appearances. And they quickly learned that these uh, candidates were getting paid to do this kind of media outreach, uh, which is common. But as part of their contracts as an applicant for Mars One, had to give a cut of their speaking fees to Mars One. So Mars One was taking these private citizens, you know, just talking about them being accepted and then taking their money to fund Mars One operations. They also had a, a point system, which would kind of track their application and they were told that the colonists with the most points or the applicants with the most points would be the ones that could go. And one of the ways to get points was to sell Mars One swag. So t-shirts and coffee mugs and stickers and things like that, which I think was probably the last straw for anyone uh, who didn't think this was a scam. Uh, MIT actually did like an in-depth research into the company, into the proposal, where they came to the conclusion that None of, none of the proposed plans of Mars One were feasible, that it was a scam. And at that point in time, Mars One pretty much ended as a, anything most, uh, most outlets considered like a real, real company or a real proposal. But it's been you know, clinging to life, jumping between investors and other things, but it is officially defunct. So we've should probably never hear anything again about Mars One, uh, which is good riddance. So the, the last point on that is whenever you hear proposals, whether it's for human Mars travel or lunar, lunar bases or whatever kind of space-related activity, always ask, what's the engineering solution, right? Because when it's just the work, wanna, what, when it's just we really want to do something, that's great. Millions of people have wanted to explore space. What are they proposing? How are they proposing it? And is it a engineering proposal or is it a marketing proposal? You know, if you look at Dear Moon, half of that is a marketing proposal where it's to inspire people to send artists around the moon. But the other side of it is a very strong engineering proposal by SpaceX. Right, we wouldn't be talking about Dear Moon if if it's just some person with money wanting to do something without a entire company worth of engineers behind it building hardware. And and for people that kind of like the idea of Mars One because they would they they like the idea of seeing what it would be like to be in a habitat on Mars where you can't go outside without a spacesuit and you're confined you know, for very long periods of time with the same people. Uh, there's actually a really cool podcast called The Habitat. A reporter from Gimlet Media gave recording devices 
to uh, the volunteers for High Seas, which was the Hawaii um, simulation experiment uh, where a group of volunteers chosen by NASA were confined to a habitat in a remote part of Hawaii and weren't allowed to go outside unless they were wearing spacesuits and stuff. NASA was studying team composition, what it would be like uh, for these people. It's basically that idea, right? It's people uh, confined to a small space, can't go outside, like they're on Mars. And NASA was using this for research. Uh, But since they had these recorders, the human element is definitely not lost and not only is this podcast extremely entertaining, it's also beautiful narrative storytelling, and, and I highly recommend it. And I kind of nerded out, but also enjoyed it for its entertainment value. So definitely shout out to them. And I think the core uh, drive behind Mars One was that a lot of people want to live on Mars or the moon or another planet or in space. And so if you would like to live on Mars... Tell us why. We'll have a post on our forum, forum.spexcast.com, where you can go over, you know, would you like to be one of the very first colonists on Mars? Do you want to be the 10,000th person? Is it something you'd like to go for vacation or do you want to move there with your family? Would you leave your existing family behind and just kind of go alone? Uh, I think there's a lot of uh, interesting motivations when it comes to leaving Earth and going beyond, which I think Mars One kind of captured that interest uh but yeah let us know what about you tj would you live on mars uh i would definitely move to mars but not as part of the first group if it was cheaper than the bay area i'd consider it (laughs) (laughs) if you like this episode you can subscribe to future episodes on itunes or your podcast service of choice also make sure to check out prior episodes including interviews with key space personas like Tori Bruno of ULA or astronaut Chris Hadfield. And you can check out in-depth articles on spacecraft and rockets, as well as our recent commentary on current events in the space industry on our blog, blog.spectest.com. Also, if you like this episode, let us know what you think of the show by leaving a review on iTunes or your podcast service of choice. We'd really love the feedback. You can also tweet at us at SpexCast. Our music is by Nelson Scott.